when you look at all these kiddos, guys, this is amazing what God has blessed us with. And uh, I am so thankful for that. I just want to add to what Dalton said about our nursery. Um, it takes a lot of workers to, uh, to serve in a nursery, to put on children's church. Our children's church last Sunday had 14 kids in it. And we were really at a point that we needed to divide children's church into two different age groups. And, and that takes more workers and it takes more people to help us with it. And, and I just want you to, uh, to be praying about that because if that was your child or grandchild or great-grandchild headed down the hall, you would want them to have the very best. And the only way that we can offer that is if all of us do our part. And so uh, I may start taking a turn down there and uh, let Dalton preach every, every other week. We'll just uh, figure out a way to do that. But uh, I know y'all would like that a lot, but I may not let you off that easy. But I do. I want you to pray about uh, doing that. If that was your kid or grandkid, uh, you would want them to have the best. And you guys are the best. And we just want to, uh, to be able to extend those ministries. Um, we offered a ladies' Bible study at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. But in order to do that, we've got to have child care uh, for the, the, the little kids that they bring with them. And so any way that you can pitch in and help us would sure go a long way in helping us to get all these ministries back up and going and, uh, and offering them fully. So be praying about that. And if God leads you to be a part of that, uh, let me or Janet or Rebecca know, and we'll be happy to plug you in. And, uh, and the more that serve, the, the, the fewer times that we need to be out and to be down the hall doing that. Okay, enough for that commercial. Let's dive in to Song of Solomon. We started this book last week, and, and I said to you last week that this was a love song. It was a song that was used in worship, and so as we read through this, we've got to keep in mind how it was used in worship, what it was used for, and, and I know that there are those that would love to preach the Song of Solomon as just a, a marriage enrichment course. Uh, and let me tell you the truth. <laughs> there is a lot of good stuff in here that you could apply to your marriage. And, and it, would, it would go a long, long way in helping a marriage to be great. But if all that the Song of Solomon is, is a marriage book, then those of you that are divorced or single or widowed could take that book and just set it aside and say it has nothing to say to me. That's not what it is. Now, you can benefit from that and you can, you can grow your relationship by looking at the Song of Solomon and seeing this love between a man and a woman and what that looks like. And, and it's really a picture of God's love toward his bride, which is us. And we take those things and then we apply them to our marriages. And, and we, we think about what Paul said in Ephesians 5 where he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved his church, his bride. So we look at how Christ loves the church, and then we go, this is how I'm supposed to love my wife. And so there's a lot of lessons that we can gain from this, but this was a, a love song that was sung in church, in worship, once a year in the Jewish church. It was sung at the time of Passover, which tells us a lot about why it was used and how it was used. It wasn't just used to celebrate marriage. Passover wasn't even about marriage. What Passover was about was God choosing a people and coming to them and redeeming them and setting them free from slavery. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt, and, and, and God sent Moses and said, tell Pharaoh to set my people free. And that was the Passover time when, when, when the death angel passed through town, and it, 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 it took out the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but it left those who were the children of God unharmed. It's a picture of God's redemption, of God coming and taking his people out. Scripture says it was not because they were the most numerous or because they had the most potential. In fact, he said it's just the opposite. You had very little to offer. And yet I chose you so that when I made something of you, I would get all the glory. So that's the context in which this, this song was used. It's the context in, in which they, they would use this in worship. And so as we read through it, we've got to keep that in mind. It's not just this passionate pursuit of a man for a woman. 
It is God's pursuit of his bride. And that's the context of that. And so if you weren't here last week, maybe you missed some of that. I'd encourage you to go back and and listen on our website to the podcast that's there. It'll help you to kind of catch up and and understand much more about the background. Um, the, The girl that is being chosen is a field worker. And she's being chosen by the king. How often does that happen? Just this week, in case you've been living in a cave, the Queen of England died, right? And what's it all about? It's all about royalty. It's all about family. It's all about who, the, the, who is a suitable uh, suitor for the one who would next be king and all these kinds of things that go into that. And, and if you know all that history, my wife loves listening to that stuff. Uh, so I get it, you know, that secondary smoke. Uh, but but it's, it's all about who was fit to be queen, who was fit to, to fill this role. If this story in Song of Solomon tells us anything, it tells us that she was not fit. She never dreamed that the king would even speak to her, much less call her to be his own. And yet that is what grace does. It's a picture of what God does for us. And the amazing thing for us is in this story in the Song of Solomon, it's a story about a king coming and choosing a field worker to be his wife. It didn't cost him a lot to do that. But for us, for God to choose us as his bride, it cost him everything. And he willingly gave that to be in relationship with us. So as we read this story, we, like I said last week, how can you read this and, and yawn and go, yeah, I'm a believer, big deal. How can we do that? We can't. When we realize who we are and who he is and how much he poured out his love on us, we can't help but respond to that love. And so here we are, the two of them. It's in, it's in this Jewish betrothal period where he has chosen her to be his bride, but she is not yet. They are engaged, and it's an engagement that can only be broken by a divorce. And so she knows that he's committed to him, and he knows that she's committed to, to him, and, and together they are in this relationship, and yet they haven't consummated the marriage yet. The, the marriage ceremony has not taken place. It's exactly where you and I find ourselves with Jesus right now. He has committed himself to us. We have committed ourselves to him. Our future with him is certain. And yet it's not all that it's going to be. It's where we live right now. This is where we find this couple. This story starts not when they first met, but here they are in this betrothal period. They are getting to know each other, and they are falling deeper and deeper in love with each other. And so as the story progresses, we are in chapter 1. We're going to pick up today in verse 7, and hopefully we'll make it a little bit farther this week than we made it last week. Uh, this, this is a song where, where you've got her singing parts of it, you've got him singing parts of it, and then you've kind of got this backup choir that every once in a while chimes in and adds a part. And we'll see those different voices today as they go through this. And so if you're reading in a Bible that, that says, you know, he and she and others, then that's what it's really about. It's a song that is sung, and, and you've got a male part that, that leads and a female part that leads, and then you've got this choir that's going to back them up and kind of fill in some of the gaps. And so this is where we're at. She is about to sing. She is about to speak. And and as she speaks in verse 7, she says to her lover, to her man that has come for her, to the king that has chosen her, she says, tell me, you who my soul loves. Notice all the way through this song, the words that they choose to describe each other. 
She is, she is convinced that she wholeheartedly loves him. She will say later on, he is mine and I am his and, and, and we love one another. And so here we are. She's asking him, tell me something. And, and she's directing this to the one whom her soul loves. Tell me where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. You're going, okay, <laughs> what in the world is she saying? What is she asking? Well, his love for her reminds her of a shepherd's love for his sheep. You and I could flash back in our mind to Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes to this whole, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He goes to this whole thing of how he walks with me every step of the way. Her love for him and his love for her reminds her of this relationship of a shepherd and a sheep. And so she begins to use these terms. And, 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 and if she's working the vineyard where she grew up with her brothers forcing her in the vineyard, chances are as she worked the vineyard out in the field, she saw the shepherds with their sheep. She knew how the shepherds cared for and loved and protected their sheep. And she feels that same protection. She feels that same provision that he offers to her. She feels as cherished to him as sheep would to their shepherd. She knows that she's loved. She says, tell me, you who love my soul the way a shepherd would love his sheep, tell me where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. She says, I know every day you love your sheep, you take care of them. And in the hottest part of the day, By the way, the part that my brothers made me work through every day. You give your sheep rest. You have them lie down in green pastures. And here's what she's saying. It's pretty romantic. Tell me when you're going to be on your lunch break. Why? Because I want to come to you. Even if it's just to steal a few moments of your time, I want to be where you are. Tell me where you're going to be at lunch today. I want to meet you there. Tell me where you pasture your flocks, where you make it lie down at noon. I want to come. And as you rest your sheep, I want us to have some time together. Let me ask you this. Is your heart for God that way? Are you saying to the Lord, Lord, show me the next time that we could just steal a few minutes together. Show me the next time that I could carve out some time and I I could come and I could meet with you. And even if it's in the middle of the day, even if it's on my lunch break, even if it's just for a few minutes, Lord, I long for the next time that I can be with you. If you read through the book of Psalms, you see David saying that again and again and again. As the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. David again and again. We, We look at David and go, how can he be a man after God's own heart? He had an affair with Bathsheba. Because David kept coming back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I just want to be in your presence. I just want to rest under the shadow of your wings. All these descriptions in the Psalms of how David just wanted to be in the presence of God. Not doing anything spectacular, just being with God. And here she is saying, I just want to be with you. That ought to reflect our desire to want to be with the Lord. Our desire just to be in his presence. Even if it's just to to take five minutes on my lunch break to pull out my Bible and take it out of my lunch kit and, and just to spend that time in the presence of God. Does your heart long like that for time with the Lord? Her heart longed for that time with her lover. And then she says, why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Well, picture this. He's not the only shepherd that's out there. 
And so she's going to take off from wherever she is at the palace or wherever she might be, and she's going to try to find him, and she doesn't want to waste what precious time she has going from flock to flock to flock of all of his companions. Just tell me where you're going to be. You know why? I want to come straight to you. I want to maximize the time that we have with you. I don't want to go through others. I don't want to veil myself. To, to veil herself would have made her look like a widow in that day. I don't want people to think I'm sad. I don't want people to think that I'm, that I'm lost and that I'm lonely. I want them to know that I am looking for you, and I want to run right past them into your arms. I want to run right past them into your presence. She doesn't want to waste a moment of her time going from flock to flock. She wants to come straight to him and maximize this time that she has in his presence. So tell me where you're at. I want to come and I want to be with you. His answer is going to give us some great insight. Some commentators will say that that he's kind of playing a little hide and seek here. He's not giving her a straight answer, but I think he really is. He's going to, to respond. These will be the first recorded words in the Song of Solomon that he speaks. And so here he is speaking. And he says to her, he calls her this, oh, most beautiful among women. He cherishes her just as she cherishes him. He's not going to condemn her for asking where he wants to be. He's not going to say, woman, I am busy at work. Don't disturb me. He's saying, let me tell you, if you don't know where I'm at, let me tell you how to find me. Because I want you to come just as much as you want to come. And look at the answer. I want you to follow in the tracks of the flock. If you don't know where I'm at, then just follow in the tracks of the flock. Well, if he's leading out sheep, they're going to, to lead some, leave some, some trails, some markers of where they've gone. And he's saying to her, don't just follow the tracks of my sheep, but, but follow in the, in the tracks of, of the flocks. And, and I think that there's a spiritual application here that you and I don't need to miss. And that is, if we're having trouble connecting with God, follow in the tracks of of the flock. Follow others who have found their way to me. Listen, you and I do not live in a vacuum. We are, we are not the first generation to try to walk with Jesus Christ. There are those who have gone before us, those who have walked this path before. And, and sometimes the best thing we can do when we're coming to God and we, we're having difficulty in connecting with God or difficulty in understanding scripture is to go and to follow in the tracks of those who have gone before us. We said in our, our study of Hebrews that we concluded right before we started this study that we are in the midst of a long race, that we are, we are running a race and that Christ has entered us into the race. And it's not a solo event, but we are in this, this, this relay race. And, and we're not the first ones out of the block and we're not the last ones to finish this thing, but we're in the middle and someone has handed the baton to us and we are to hand it to somebody else. We are to follow in the tracks of those who have come before us. And that's what he's saying. If you don't know how to find me, Follow the tracks of the flock. Follow those who are following me. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says something very similar to us as believers. He says, I want you to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. You, you, you say you serve a God you can't see. Well, look, let, there's flesh and blood. Here's somebody pursuing Christ. You pursue those who pursue Christ. And so she wants to come to him, and he says, look, if you don't know, then follow the flocks. Go and, and, and find your way to me. Follow those who are doing it. It's a picture of us living in community with others. Some that we walk with flesh and blood face to face, and others that, that we walk with in community who have gone before us. When I study for messages, I don't just rely upon what I can figure out. I go and I search those who have spent their lifetime trying to understand Scripture. 
and I'll pull out commentaries and I'll pull out books and I'll pull out other resources of people who have given their lives to understanding sometimes a single book of the Bible. Do you realize that there's people who have spent their entire lives trying to study the book of Jeremiah? to try to understand the book of Isaiah. And those guys, the rich understandings that they have are incredible. I would be a fool not to follow in their tracks. I'd be a fool not to take what they have to say and to let that speak to me and let that guide me deeper in my walk with God. One of the reasons we gather together for worship and that we gather together to study the, the word of God is that we might learn from one another. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. We come together, and, and, and there's things that, that, that I don't understand that I learn from others. And there's things that God has shown me that I can share with you. And then there's things that you understand now that you can share with other people. And that's the way that we point people back to Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, if you want to connect with me and you don't know how to get here, you're having some difficulty finding me, follow in the tracks of the flock. Live your faith out in community with one another. Come behind those who have gone before Learn from them and follow in their footsteps. Now I need to say something here, and and I want to be clear. When we talk about following in others' footsteps, I, I want to make clear that we don't come through them, but we learn from them. They are not the ones that make the way. They are the ones that show us the way. It's a big difference. There are many who think you've got to come through a pastor to get to God. Preacher, I want you to pray to God. You're a lot closer to him than I am. He listens to you better than he listens to me. That's not true. We all have been given access to the Father. We may need somebody to point us to the way, but we don't need anybody else to make the way because Jesus is that way. And so we come, and he says, I want you to do that. And he says something else to her here in in this verse 8. He says, I want you to pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. All right, what's he saying? Well, if you don't know how to find me, Follow the tracks. Follow those who are following me. And by the way, somewhere along the way, I want you to drop off your sheep at the babysitters. I want you to come alone. Leave behind your work. Leave behind your worries. Leave behind those things for a little while. And just come be with me. Drop off your goats, he says, at the babysitters. Leave them at the shepherd's tent. Let someone else watch them for a few minutes. I want you to set everything aside for just a moment. I want you to come alone undistracted. Isn't that the big challenge of us finding time with God today? Is to come in an undistracted moment. Sometimes we try to juggle 15 things and still hear from God, and it's so hard to do that. If you're raising children or if you're in the the midst of this, this demanding career, one of the most difficult things that you can do is to try to find those moments when you're not distracted those moments when you can hear from god you may have to get up earlier or stay up later you may have to give up a lunch break to find that that undisturbed moment but he's saying please do so and come carve out time to be alone with me distraction free so that we can truly enjoy one another He's still speaking to her, and he says to her, I compare you. He's making a comparison now of how beautiful she is. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. That's not the best pickup line I've ever heard. But it really is, if you stop and understand what he's saying. Pharaoh's chariots were pulled by the finest stallions 
in the country. They were, they were dressed up. They were groomed. They were the best, the most prized horses. And he says, I compare you to one of them. People make a fuss about Pharaoh's horses. Let me tell you something. They haven't seen you. In my studies this week, something interesting came up, and I really don't think this is where it's headed, but it makes a, it makes a good point. They said that, that when, when two uh, uh, countries would go at war, and, and the Pharaoh would show up with all of his chariots, and they would have all their warriors placed on these chariots so they could move quickly, and they could, they could issue uh, some, 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 some severe damage, that one of the war strategies was they would take a young mare in heat and send her through the enemy camp. And that mare in heat, when she ran through past the, the chariots, the, the, the stallions of the Pharaoh, those stallions who were trained to, to just stand and obey would be so distracted and so messed up that it would throw the camp into confusion and the enemy would take advantage. Now, I don't think that's what he's saying about his wife. But I think he is saying, you, you are that kind of a woman that, that, that you catch my eye. You are the kind that, that I can't ignore, that I can't just, just stay away from. You, you have captured my love. You have captured me. You are this mare among the stallions. You're a head turner. Your beauty is undeniable. It is captivating. We might say in our day and time that, that she is eye candy. Her beauty came from deep within her. It was an inner beauty that he saw. Remember, her skin was dark, and, and there was nothing about her appearance, she said, that would make a king stop and look at her. But he saw something in her. It came from deep within. She didn't need the jewels and all the stuff that Pharaoh's horses needed in order to dress her up. Although as the king, he was about to give all of that to her as well. He says, I compare you to this mare among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck a string of, of jewels. Again, those horses were all, all their reins and everything was decked out with all these jewels to show their worth and their value. And he says, you don't need all that, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. And, and it's interesting that the ornaments and the strings of jewels and all the things that he's going to decorate her with didn't come from her. She was a poor farmhand who had nothing. But her beauty came from him. Her beauty came as he provided it for her. He's going to give it to her to accent her natural beauty, to highlight her strengths, and to call out all these features that he saw in her. Guys, listen. When God saves us and he places his Holy Spirit within us, that Holy Spirit brings gifts to us. And those gifts accent and, and, and they take our strengths that God has placed within us and they display them to bring glory to God. You know, your gifts that God's given you are not there for your own glory, but they are there that you might reflect him to the world and that they might see that. And so here he is saying, your, your cheeks are lovely, you're gorgeous, you're beautiful, all this stuff, and I'm going to give you even more. And then the others chime in. The choir sings in this one little verse. We will make, you, make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. There's a community saying, oh, we want to be a part of what God is doing, what your man is doing for you. We will make this for you, and we will adorn you with that. 
Then the conversation seems to change. They're, they're going to be, this song is, 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 is it's not a logical progression. It's not a, the imagery changes just like it would in other songs. And, and we seem to move from, from, from this, this him adoring her into this conversation that's going to lead them into a mealtime together. And uh, they are there together. Verse 12, she speaks. She says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Sounds like you're reading Shakespeare, right? What is she saying? Well, the word couch could mean bed, but it could also mean the table that he reclines at at a meal. Because these guys are not married, because this is, this is a, a song that is sung in church, and we know that it's, it's all altogether pure in what it's doing, we think that it, it means more of this, this, this couch that you would recline at at a meal. Remember, they don't sit at a table the way that we do. When Jesus had the, the Last Supper with the disciples, they reclined together uh, on a couch. It was common for them to be close together, to be reclining at the table, to enjoy a meal together. And so we feel like that that's probably what she's describing here. And she's saying to him, look, I, I want you to know that, that when the king was on his couch. Now, a couple things. I'll just give you a hint, okay? This is his couch. She's still the one coming into the kingdom, right? She's still the one. They're not married yet. It's his couch. He's reclining on it. He's, he's preparing a meal, uh, or, or he's enjoying a meal, I should say, reclining at this dim- dinner table, and he's sharing a meal with her. And then she says, my nard gives forth its fragrance. All right, again, part of the customs of this day. They didn't have a lot of running water the way that we do. They did not have deodorant. They did not have a lot of perfumes and things that we have. But those who were wealthy could afford these, these high-dollar perfumes. And nard was one of the most expensive. When we read the song we sang about this, this jar, this alabaster jar that was broken at his feet, that was, that was this kind of perfume that would have filled up the room with this smell. And so why in the world was she wearing nard? Well, there was probably in that day and time a lot of body odor, uh, I know on my trip to Africa, uh, when I went to Africa for 17, 18 days on that mission trip, you get among the Africans who don't take baths every single day, and there is body odor that is there. And so they would use perfumes to cover up that body odor. So that's part of what's going on. And so she says, while the king is on his couch and he is enjoying a meal, and evidently she is there enjoying the meal with him, as she comes near, she says, I smell good. She had used what he had provided in order to please him and to offer it back to him. So he has provided her with all kinds of things that she's never had before. She had probably come into the presence of men before uh, 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 worried or, or alarmed about the way that she smelled or the way that she looked. And he's already talked to her about how gorgeous that she looks. And now she says, I came in and he noticed how good I smelled. As she came near, he, he enjoyed what he smelled. But she had simply taken what he had offered to her and then offered it back to him. These ladies would wear this expensive perfume on a necklace that would hang. And it was a, it was a little pendant that, that they would soak in the perfume and then wear as a necklace around their neck. And when they came in and got up close, you could smell that perfume instead of smelling the odor of their body. Again, it was provided by the king because it was not something that she could afford on her own. It's a picture of how you and I take what God has offered to us and we offer it back to him. 
God has shown us his love, and in love we worship him back. And our worship is as a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. It's not something that can be, be, be originating with us. It's something that, that is a response from us that he has already poured out on us. It's the sweet smell of love and worship. She goes on talking about these, these spices and this perfume that she is wearing. And, and she describes her lover in these words. Now, it's important that you understand she is describing what he is to her and not where he is on her. When you read this next little phrase, it's easy to look at that and to think, man, this is getting hot and heavy. This is getting nasty and perverted. It is not. Listen to what she says. My beloved, that's her husband, that's her husband-to-be, is to me. This is what he means to me. This is how valuable And how important he is to me. He is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Some that don't understand this will say, oh, they're saying that she's letting him enjoy her. That's not what this is saying. They're not yet married. What she's saying is this is what he means to me. This is what he is to me. He is this sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. So well, here's what, he's, what she's really trying to say is that what, what he is to me is this thing that gives me confidence. This thing that makes me feel accepted. This thing that makes me feel wanted and attractive and, and desired. That's what he is to me. He is the thing that I hold dear to me that makes me confident in his presence she's not confident in herself she's confident in him and he is that sachet of myrrh that that rests between her breast and 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 so he is to her this sachet covering her offensiveness and masking all the odor and making her desirable isn't that what jesus's sacrifice did for us He came to us while we were still sinners, while we were repulsive to God. And he died and took away our sin. His blood covered us so that when we are in the presence of God, we can come confidently before the throne of God. Not confident in ourselves, but, but confident in what Jesus has done for us. And, and, and we could say the same thing about Jesus, that he is like a sachet of myrrh that, that lies between our breasts, that, that, that takes away our offensiveness and makes us uh, presentable before God, that makes us something other than offensive before God. She kept him and his words near to her heart. She felt confident and secure, loved and desirable in his presence. She went from being a hot mess to being a sweet smell in his nostrils. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are told that that's what Jesus does for his bride. Listen to these words. He's writing to husbands, but he's describing to husbands how they are to relate to their wives. And he uses Jesus as the example, what Jesus did for us as the example of what we as husbands are to do for our wives. He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. That he might cleanse her uh, by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. 
This is what this groom has done for his bride. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He comes to us and he cleanses us. He covers our stench. And then he says, come boldly into the presence of God. She repeats it in, in, in a way about him, but, but she says, this is what he means to me. And then she's going to say in verse 14, this is also what he means to me, how I see him. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. The henna blossoms were these bright flowers found in the most unexpected places. Here's what she's saying. I never expected to find a love like this in a king. I always thought that they would kind of be standoffish and they would be stuffy and that they would be picky and they would be the, the, the man that, that, that only wanted the best, not created the best. And I found this bright flower in the most unlikely place. I didn't expect the king to be like him. She's shocked and yet pleased with all that she sees. He had completely surprised her and made her rethink her whole image of the king. Guys, when we read the Gospels, it ought to leave us in such awe as well. We read in the Old Testament what God demanded, and we read in the New Testament that he supplied it all. And that ought to leave us forever changed. We read in the Old Testament of people who stood condemned, who could never escape their slavery to sin. And we read in the New Testament that Jesus has changed all of that. And he covers our sins and makes us pleasable in God's sight. They moved from the dinner to a stroll in the forest after dinner. And as they began to walk together, they began to talk, and they're going to exchange these compliments back and forth to each other. In verse 15, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. He can't overstate his love for her, and he's captivated by the beauty he sees in her eyes. He says, Your eyes are like doves. Here's what he's saying. I can't take my eyes off of her. And neither does God take his eyes off of us. God watches us every moment of every day, not because he's a spy trying to catch us do something wrong, but because he is in love with you and I, and he is captivated with us as well. God takes great pleasure in the bride that he has chosen. He has put her at peace in his presence. Her eyes are like doves. He looks in her eyes. He doesn't see fear. He sees her perfectly at peace, gentle, peaceful, and inviting. He offers her that compliment. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. She comes back with the same words to him, but in a masculine form. She says to him, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. It's the same words, just in a masculine form. And so he would say to her, man, you are gorgeous. And she would say, you are so handsome. It's the same thing. And you know, in our worship with God, sometimes the best that we can do is to repeat back to God what God has said to us. God expresses his love to us, and sometimes the best that we can do is to use those same words and offer them back to him. She says, behold, you're beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. And then she says something that shows the shift in this relationship. Now, they're taking a stroll, we think, through the forest, and it's it's lush with greenery. Remember how she said the king was on his couch? his couch look at the shift 
our couch is green. As they walk and as they stroll and as they progress in their relationship with one another, now they are beginning to dream about the day that they're coming together. They're beginning to dream about the home that they're going to build, the family that they're going to establish, this relationship that's going to go to an all another level in just another chapter or two. And she begins to refer to the couch no longer as his, but as ours. Our couch is green. Verse 17, as he responds, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Why the shift in scenery? Chances are they're on this stroll through the forest and they get to a spot that's secluded and they choose to, to lie down on this green grass. And she says, oh, the, the, the plushness of the, the greenery. It reminds me that our couch, that our bed is green. It's alive. It's going to be full of life. And as he looks up at this canopy of trees that's above him, he he says, oh, and the house that we'll build together, the beams are like cedar and and our rafters are are out of pine. He sees the canopy of trees and, and talks about the strength and the stability and the shade and the protection, all the things that he desires to provide for her. And once again, we see a huge contrast in this king who has rescued her from the brothers who had enslaved her. He wants to provide protection. They forced her to work. He, he wants to, to bring the best out of her, and, and they just wanted to hold her back and to crush her down. Everything in her world was being transformed. Everything she knew. Can you imagine going from a field girl to being chosen to be the bride of the king? You're talking about culture shock? All the things that she'd never been taught, that she felt like she needed to to learn. And yet not once in this do you see him with demanding rules. He's just saying, come be with me. All that stuff will take care of itself. You just come be with me. And they dream of the home that they're going to build. When we get to chapter 2 real quick. We, we read of her being transformed and yet remaining humble before the Lord. Everything in her world was being transformed. How could she not feel this being overcome and overwhelmed with this love that he has offered to her? Again, how do you and I look at all this and go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's really not that big a deal. How can we be content with the old life? So their conversation progresses, and she says to him in chapter 2, I am a rose of Sharon. Now, we read the word rose, and we think romance, right? The rose of Sharon they're talking about was just a, a, a common wildflower in that area. I'm just a common wildflower, she says. There's a sense of humility in her voice. She's saying, I'm just one of millions. Why would you pick me? I'm just an ordinary girl. Here we hear the humility in her assessment of herself. She remembers where she came from. She knows who she was. And she says, I'm just a simple girl. Why would you pick me? Aware of who she was and where he found her, she is amazed by his grace. And she struggles to believe that it can be true. I'm a lily of the valleys. Nothing special about me. You know, we got a song that, that's been sung in church for years and years and years. Jesus is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. 
the fairest of 10,000 to my soul, that was taken from this verse and a misunderstanding of this verse. She is the one speaking, not him. And, and she's saying, I am nothing special. And we sing that song as if being the lily of the valley is the most special thing in the world. I think it's a misunderstanding of what this verse is. But, but here, here she's saying, I'm just a, a, a wildflower, a common wildflower. I'm just a lily found in the valley. I'm nothing special. But look what he says. He takes up the word that she used, that lily. And he says, oh, you think you're a lily. You are the lily that I picked from among the brambles, among the thorns. You are special. You are not one of a million. You are one in a million. You're, you're, you're like a lily among the brambles. You're, you're the flower that I picked out of the thorns. And so is my love, my woman. Now, he's not talking about his love like he's giving her my love, my woman. So are you among the young women. You are like, like a, a, a lily out of the thorns. So you, among all the other women, stood out. You are the one I've chosen. You are the one that's special in my eyes. Not one of millions, but one in a million. He picked her from among the thorns, just as Jesus, or as God chose Israel, and as Jesus chose us. She responds. He says, you're the lily among the brambles, and you're the love among the young women. And she's going to play off of that again and and, and repeat it back to him with her own analogy. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest. There's the analogy. You're this apple tree with fruit galore in the midst of these saplings that are just growing. You are the king. That's the apple tree among all the other trees. So is my beloved among the young men. So she's playing off of his words. Again, echoing back to him the, 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 the stuff that he has offered to her. And look what she says. You're the apple tree. Of all the other trees in the forest, you're the apple tree. And you are so among all the young men. And it's with great delight that I sat in his shadow. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. What is she saying? saying, when I lived with my brothers, I was forced out in the sun. No one protected me. No one provided for me. I didn't even have time for myself. Chapter 1, the first part. But it's not so with you. You are this apple tree that cast its branches wide, that's filled with fruit. And under you, I can find shade and protection and provision And everything that my soul longs for. It was with great delight that I sat in his shadow. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. What he provides me is satisfying. It's sustaining. It's sweet, not bitter. I think in this you can see her giving herself to him. In some ways, some would say that this is a picture of her willingly, delightfully submitting herself to her soon-to-be husband. I can trust you. My brothers, no. But you, yes. I can willingly and delightfully come under the canopy that you provide. I can sit in your shadow and enjoy the fruit that is sweet to my taste. 
What he was providing for her was sweet, not bitter. What she had tasted for her whole life before that was this bitterness of her brothers. But now she has one who loves her and provides for her all that she needs. And she was at rest in his care, delighting in all that he provided. Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house, literally to the house of wine, the, the place of celebration. He's going to provide a feast and satisfy her hunger and fill her emptiness. And she says the whole time, his banner over me was love. His intention for me was love, not lust. He wasn't taking her to the house of wine to get her drunk, to take advantage of her. He was taking her there to celebrate the love that they shared. And his banner, his intention for her was pure. It was love. He was going to give to her, not take from her as her brothers had done. He would sacrifice for her, not ask her to sacrifice for him. She's overcome with this love that he gives that's so pure. And she, she just responds with great vulnerability. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. She's confident that his provisions will sustain her over time. They'll not run dry. Refresh me with apples and her soul is refreshed by him. And I think again of Psalm 23 where it says, He restoreth my soul. And she's talking about that here. And then she says something that is so vulnerable that only somebody who can fully trust would be willing to say. And that is she looks in his eyes and she says, I am sick with love. We live in a culture today that uses those words flippantly. But here she's using it with all of her heart. And she's saying, I, I am sick with love. I feel weak in my knees. Why? Because his love is that overwhelming. And she can be vulnerable with him. She, she's not holding back saying, I don't want him to know how much I love him. I, I don't want him to, to feel like I'm chasing him. I don't want him to feel like that, that I just got to have him. She's not doing anything. She's not holding anything back. She is being vulnerable with him. Do you know why? Because she has no fear that he will take that vulnerability and use it against her. She has no fear that if she expresses her love to him and lays it all on the line, that he's going to somehow walk away and go, ah, the chase is over, I'm done. She is being vulnerable. And vulnerability is built upon character, and character is forged over time through trust. And, and here's what happens, guys. It, it, you know, we say that we want us to, to be in community with one another, and we want to be in relationship with one another. Please understand this. That doesn't just happen automatically. Don't throw 10 people in a group and say, okay, be vulnerable. Oh, sure. I have to know that I can trust you. And I have to know that what I share with you, you're not going to turn around and use as a spear through my heart. I have to know that, that when I share with you my vulnerability or I share with you my love or I share with you my weakness, that you're going to hold that precious and never use that against me. It's what we have in our relationship with God. We come to him and we confess our sin and he takes our sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west to remember it no more. It's not that God can't remember. It's that God will never use it against us. He will never hold it again. It's been forgiven. It's been erased. It's been done away with. But if you want to destroy vulnerability, just like that, you take something that someone has shared with you in confidence and you share it with another. 
And that'll be the last time they're vulnerable before you. You take something that someone shared with you and you use it as a weapon against them later on. And it's the last time that they'll be vulnerable with you. She's saying, I can be vulnerable with this man. I know him and I trust him with my whole heart. I'm sick with love. Totally vulnerable, yet completely safe. And it's as if she swoons in verse 6. And he catches her. His left hand is under my head. And his right hand embraces me. I am completely safe, even in my weakness, before him. I can let myself go. And then she turns to the young maidens, the girls that would be there, maybe in the choir, that are singing. And she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is a phrase that she's going to use three different times in this song. And what she's saying to the young girls is, be patient, girls. Just as my king has come for me, your king is coming for you. Save yourself the heartache and the regret of not waiting for God's best. Wait for the one who will love you the way this one loves me. The one whom you can be vulnerable with and yet safe. Wait, for he will come for you. And then you can experience the love that I've experienced as well. Follow in my footsteps, she says. And wait and be patient. And know that if God's eye is on the sparrow, that he watches over you. Guys, this is an incredible, incredible letter reminding us of the deep, unfathomable love of God. And all the way through this, we see how much he has loved us. The way that this king loved his bride, he loves us even more. And we are his. How dare we yawn at the love he offers to us? How dare we hold back? If there's anybody in this world that you can be vulnerable with, it is with your Savior King, your Shepherd King, Jesus Christ. Why not say to him today, Lord, I'm a mess. But you can be that sachet that gives me confidence to come before the throne. Remind me how much I'm loved. Remind me of your sacrifice that covered my sin and my filth. And let me come into your presence and let me celebrate this great love that you've poured out on me. It's a love, guys, that nothing else can match. And it's a love that he has for you. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? That's the really the only question that remains. How will I respond to a king who loves me like that? Let's pray.